This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Lava, Thunder, and Screaming Goats edition. It's Wednesday, July 12th, 2022. On today's show, Thor, Love and Thunder. It's the fourth solo venture for the Norse god as uh, reinterpreted by Marvel Studios. Uh, As always, this stars Chris Hemsworth as the hammer-wielding deity. And it returns Natalie Portman as with Ragnarok. This one is directed by Taika Waititi. And then Fire of Love is a documentary feature about a legendary pair of volcano chasers, the Crafts, Katya and Maurice, were a married couple who traveled the globe over to film active volcanoes up close. This extraordinary film, really, really remarkable film, is directed and co-written by Sarah Dosa. And finally, the streaming services, they've proliferated and matured very quickly over the last few years. A ton of competition now in that space. We discuss which one we like best, worst, and in between, the fate of that business as well. Joining me today is uh, Jamel Bowie, of course, the political columnist for The New York Times, among many other things. Hey, Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it's awesome. Two weeks in a row is quite a treat. And of course, Dana Stevens, every week in a row is a treat. Uh, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, hello. All right. Well, I'm sorry to report due to a scheduling conflict, I was not able to see Thor Love and Thunder. So I will drop out for the first segment and hand the microphone over to Dana. And my place will be taken by David Sims, the terrific film critic of The Atlantic. Take it away, Dana. Thor Love and Thunder is the fourth Marvel movie to focus on the Nordic god slash superhero played by Chris Hemsworth. It's also the first time ever a Marvel hero has gotten four consecutive solo movies. And in the words of our guest for this segment, film critic David Sims, it is the 20 bajillionth movie to come out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like the last solo Thor film, Thor Ragnarok, in 2017, Love and Thunder was directed by Taika Waititi, the New Zealand-born comedian, actor, and filmmaker who, in the years since Ragnarok came out, has won a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar and has become a ubiquitous presence on the Marvel-Disney-Pixar scene. When Thor Ragnarok came out back in 2017, it was hailed as a really fresh comedic voice in the cinematic universe of Marvel. We're going to talk about whether YTT's second Marvel venture lives up to those standards in a moment. We're going to kick off, first of all, with a little sound clip from Thor Love and Thunder. In this scene, you will hear Hemsworth as Thor, Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, another as Guardian goddess heroine, and Natalie Portman as Dr. Jane Foster, the astrophysicist who is the former Earth girlfriend of Thor. The three of them are discussing entering the Realm of Shadows, a colorless netherworld where they're about to seek the film's villain, who we'll talk more about later. They're in the Shadow Realm. How'd you know? The atmosphere there has a darkness like no other. It's as if color fears to tread. It's unmistakable. Well, then, if it's color we need, let's bring the rainbow. Bring the rainbow? Is that a catchphrase or something? She's only been a Thor for a minute. I mean, saving lives, she's quite good at, but the rest of it, she needs work. How many catchphrases have there been? A lot. Yep. Jump the gun. But hang on. He moves through shadows, and he's going to the shadow realm. It seems like that's where he's going to be the most powerful. You're right. We can't just go marching in there. It could be a trap. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? I'm thinking it. What are we thinking? Thinking what? I'm thinking it, too. Omnipotent, Omnipotent city. city. Omnipotent city, they say at the end. So they're headed off to Omnipotent City, the realm of the gods. Joining us for this segment, because Steve was not able to make it to the theater to see Thor, is David Sims, film critic for The Atlantic, host of the Blank Check podcast, and friend of our podcast. Hi, David. Hi, Dana. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to have you on this one, David, because in your review in particular of Thor Love and Thunder, you raise a question that goes beyond this movie. You ask whether it's time to start ridding the world of superheroes the way that this movie, as we'll get into, uh, thinks about what it would be to rid the universe of gods. In addition to telling me what you think of Thor Love and Thunder, I want to hear about how you are feeling about the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we slog our way through phase four of their output. I mean, for one, I think it's a little a little alarming that we all can throw around uh, terms like phase four, which is a term I know and you know. And it's like, what does that even mean at this point? Like, what are we? What are we? What, 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 phase four of how many phases? Like, what what is the meaning of phase four? And like, as far as I can tell, phase four is this sort of catch all for like everything that Marvel's produced since uh, Avengers Endgame 
which offered, you know, something of a real conclusion for some of his characters, right? And since then, it's been a lot of, like, trying stuff out and giving maybe new characters a little room to shine and doing television shows and then throwing things out like Thor Love and Thunder that's a sequel we ostensibly would be excited for, right? Because, like you said, Ragnarok was this sort of charming hit and sort of gave a new angle to the character and Taika Waititi brought like, you know, some sort of unexpected humor to the franchise and all that. And so everything about that feels eminently logical doing another one. And yet it's watching the film it, it and watching a lot of these recent Marvel movies. And I like plenty of Marvel movies. You just have this sense of everyone is kind of looking around waiting for the next big thing or the next purpose, like for whatever, whatever this saga, where where are we headed? Like, where's the road going? I I don't have much of a sense of that anymore of big stakes. I mean, there I'm going to throw to Jamel because I know that Jamel responded very negatively to this movie. I think your, your tweet about it was more like boar love and thunder. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, so Jamel, you are also the I think probably the biggest comic book fan among us, and uh, and you were very down on this movie. I, on the other hand, was somewhat of a critical outlier in finding it a trifle but mildly amusing. So I want to hear why it's bore love and thunder for you. I just found the whole thing exhausting. Even that clip just bummed me out because it's sort of you know there there's no there doesn't need to be any like compelling reasons beyond i guess the plot needs to take us to this new place um for why they're going and there's no there's no like you know there's no attempt to un- like unpack what this place even is it's just like oh of course there's this big city where all the gods live we're gonna go there now and just sort of the that whole energy of kind of like you know we're not gonna bother trying to you know even attempt to ground anything in in the characters or the story or any larger story that's being told not not in terms of plot points but in terms of like thematic concerns which are like non-existent and i don't need much on that point i just need like a little something um it's all sort of i don't know this movie in particular and i think it's been true as david said there's a lot of a lot of the recent marvel movies just felt sort of of like half-hearted and tossed together the one thing in the whole film that I thought was worthwhile was Christian Bale's performance as Gore, the God killer. Um, and there was like not enough of that. <laughs> it's like the one really good thing there wasn't very much of, and all the stuff that is, um, you know, almost kind of paint by numbers. Uh, it, it's everywhere. I gave this movie a mildly positive review, and I will give you some of the reasons. For one thing, as you just said, Jamel, Christian Bale, who's an unusually good actor to put in the role of a Marvel villain and and an unusually big name, is great as Gore the God Butcher. I think it's one of the best Marvel villains I can remember. I mean, he's given this pre-credit sequence where you see his motivation for becoming a god killer, and that's exactly what he is, someone who goes through the universe trying to slaughter all deities. And uh, not only is his performance genuinely moving and his motivation genuinely understandable and identifiable, but he's scary. He's legitimately scary every time he comes on the scene, which I agree is too little. So that's one thing in its favor. Secondly, this movie is short. (laughs) It comes in at just under two hours. I think it's a minute under two hours. And that in itself, the lack of bloat is an argument on its behalf. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, there's some heavy stuff, including in the the villain story and in Jane's story. But this movie actually did. And maybe this will make you guys not respect my sense of humor anymore. But it made me (laughs) laugh out loud several times, usually at Chris Hemsworth, just kind of doofus jock hero character. But yeah, there were a few visual jokes. There were even some camera jokes that made me laugh. I thought that the screaming goats that pulled the Viking ship through space, which is their, their vessel they travel in, were really silly and funny. And I think I went in with you know lowered expectations thinking i'm just going to try to appreciate this movie for what it is and not think about how marvel movies are destroying cinema (laughs) and i kind of enjoyed it i i laughed plenty at this film i think like i'm an easy laugh to be fair i'll laugh at anything but uh but like the goats are funny there's plenty of like taika's humor that'll get sort of like an easy laugh out of me um but i just find that he used to be better or certainly many times in his career has been better at sort of weaving the kind of tossed off humor stuff with something more emotional right and and this movie has emotional plot lines like you mentioned like it's got 
he's trying to do the trick he pulled with like uh hunt for the wilder people or jojo rabbit or what you know and uh instead it just felt like he's kind of just whooshing from thing to thing and not sure what to stick to like it, it all it all felt undercooked i mean dana you mentioned that this this is a little unusual that it's the fourth solo movie for a marvel character which hasn't happened before you know i mean argue maybe you can think of you know one of the team movies as a solo movie for iron man or whatever but this is officially the the first fourth solo movie for a marvel character and that's a little tough because the thor character over the course of three solo movies and four Avengers movies and so on and so forth has sort of had a character arc has developed a character arc, has come to a place. And so maybe instead of having a movie trying to advance Thor's character a bit further, and there really isn't that much more advancing to do. Maybe you do focus on someone else uh, in the film, in, in, in the world and a movie that was like much more about gore and sort of much more centered on Gore's journey might have been kind of interesting. It might have given everyone something to do, might have given, might have provided an anchor for the script for all the characters to kind of be connected to. But as it stands, you have a character, Thor, who has has developed plenty, and there's just not that much left to do with him. Yeah, see, that's where I wanted to take the conversation next in a way is beyond this movie and sort of into <laughs> whether the MCU, because I know that I felt not so much after seeing this movie, but after reviewing it and then just seeing the wave of critical response and fan response that I just feel so over the entire Marvel shtick. And I feel I feel sort of like asking my editor, can I just beg off reviewing Marvel movies for the upcoming future? Because there keep being these exceptions where I think, oh, well, this one's directed by Chloe Zhao. So maybe this one will have something new and interesting to say about it. Right. Or, oh, Taika Waititi is making another Thor movie and this is going to be something fresh and new. And it seems like. I, I don't know that you can lay it at the feet of these directors. You know, I mean, Marvel is more and more interested in getting these name brand directors to try to kind of put their imprimatur on the product. But ultimately, it is still a Marvel product and there's only so much you can do with it. And I think that's really true as a critic as well. I, I really feel like there's an orthodoxy, not just the orthodoxy of fandom, but a critical orthodoxy, too, around these movies. And it's just really hard to encounter them as individual experiences rather than as, you know, part of this this mass production line. There's a real as as much as the, not every Marvel movie is perfect. Uh, certainly there's a real feat to what they pulled <laughs> off in that run from iron man to avengers endgame which is what about 10 11 years where the the, the fact that any of that makes sense that there's a sort of big narrative through line to those 20 movies and it ends in this way that brings everybody together and feels somewhat satisfying you know that the, the Nothing has happened like that in movies before. So, you know, I, I doff my hat. It's good. I like Marvel movies just fine. Like, I just... Now just... It, I just get this sense now that there's this... There is this prestige associated with Marvel as much as people like to razz them. They are, you know, guaranteed big hit movies. They are a way to plant a foothold as a filmmaker, right? And maybe get enough clout that you can go off and make passion projects afterwards. But... Now I feel like they just exist for the sake of existing. And that's a problem if you're going to pump three or four out a year on top of these freaking TV shows that are feeling, you know, uh, vaguely relevant at best. Um, so I imagine, I don't think people like Kevin Feige, who runs this whole operation, are stupid. Like, I do imagine there's a longer game they're playing and sort of a hope to kind of start bringing some some threads together and you know add some coherence but uh i just my whole take in my review where i'm saying you know the gore the god butcher thing he he is sick and tired of these heroes who are kind of just like guffawing and like goofing around and like not really interested in being superheroes and that's that's sort of the vibe of some of these recent movies like there's not a lot of like straightforward daring do happening right now. So it is easy to identify with Gore just wanting to swing a big axe around, a big sword, whatever it is he's got. The necro sword, uh, David. The, the necro sword, of course. And, you know, I, I, I'm a big comic book nerd. I, I think Jamel knows that. Like, I. I know everything that this is pulling from. Like, I love the Jason Aaron run on Thor that this is sort of inspired by. And. 
I just don't think the movie has really been able to drill down to the like you know big emotional storytelling that it's capable of. I I completely agree with that, and um, but I I do think there's something there's something to be said for having people not just behind the camera but kind of in the whole process who don't have all that much attachment to these things and are willing to kind of experiment with them. Because I think what the MCU is missing is it's such a streamlined factory at this point um, that there's there's no real sense that that they're that these characters or these worlds are without boundaries. We know what the boundaries are. They're very clear. And you know the the last superhero movie I watched before this um, was the new was Matt Reeves's new Batman movie. And what I kind of just like about that that movie is it it's it sort of attempts to do something different with the character, play around with the world a bit more, give you something a little new that you haven't seen before. Um, in terms of a very well-worn property. And I just don't think there's much of that with the Marvel movies. Um, and it's it's when you when you add to some aesthetic things about them that they all kind of look drab. I think this one especially looked like it was shot on a parking lot. Um, <laughs> it kind of it it <laughs> adds up to something very disappointing. And for me, at least, it felt, and I, I made this, I said this on Twitter, it felt like eating, you know, like a, a cold McRib. Just sort of like far less than the sum of its parts at that point. And the sum of its parts weren't even that great to begin with. Yeah, the parking lot is not a joke, Jamil. I think you'd be, I'm sure you guys saw that interview where Natalie Portman actually talked about a scene which she described as visually stunning, maybe for PR purposes, and that she remembered being on a parking lot of Best Buy while they were shooting this, this green screen moment. All right. Well, the movie is Thor Love and Thunder. It's in theaters only right now, but no doubt coming to streaming pretty soon. Let us know what you thought of the movie and of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and of this segment at culturefest at slate.com. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we discuss business. Dana, what do you have? Our only item of business today, Steve, is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we will answer a question from a listener named Ezra, who wrote in wanting to know which movie cliches we would retire if we could. This is a really good question. He gave a couple examples of his cliches that he would retire, which we'll tell you about when we get to that segment. But we have our own thoughts as well. So we are really excited to take on Ezra's question. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as you know, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. Katya and Maurice met as young students and bonded over a mutual and very intense fascination with volcanoes. Each became a scientist, she a geochemist, he a geologist. They got married and together they spent the rest of their lives chasing active volcanoes the globe over. To support themselves, they created scores of books and films and made dozens upon dozens of actually very charming TV appearances in their native France and elsewhere. These add up to an astonishing archive, which has now been sorted through and cut into a 90-minute documentary, Fire of Love. As moving as the up-close images of the exploding earth are molten and exploding earth, it's really, it's really amazing, trust me. This wild, trippy symphony is as much about time, human consciousness, and love as it is about its ostensible subject, volcanoes. This film is directed by Sarah Dosa. Uh, as I think I said, Katya and Maurice were French. Much of the film is subtitled, but it is narrated in English beautifully by Miranda July. In the following clip, you'll hear her talking about what drives Katya and Maurice to explore such perilous terrain. Katya and Maurice are after the strange alchemy of elements, the combination of mineral, heat, gas, and time that incites an eruption. What is it, they ask, that makes the Earth's heart beat, its blood flow? They study, examine, and question. Katja and Maurice begin to learn the secrets of the planet that few others know. Understanding is love's other name. 
Jamel, I uh, went into this not knowing what to expect. I found myself completely riveted, very taken with it. What did you make of this movie? I had the exact same experience. I just knew that this is a movie about volcanoes, and that was the, the extent of my knowledge. And by the end of it, I was sort of um, enwrapped with the couple, sort of really taken with their story and their journey, heartbroken at how it ended, but just sort of really kind of really amazed with the film. I watched it with my wife, and we both were just sort of entranced for 90 minutes. I, I thought it was... Um, a really beautiful film. Yeah, I'd be shocked if the three of us weren't pounding the table on this, Dana. Am I, am I right in that regard? What do you, you think of Fire of Love? I mean, I am certainly pounding the table that it's a, it's a must-see documentary. The, the, the actual story of the couple, the couple themselves, who was just unbelievably telegenic and charming, and then the over 200 hours of footage of, of volcanoes that they made together over, I guess, about 20 years uh, that's been edited down into this just visually absolutely stunning. Steve, you, you stole a word that I was going to use, which is trippy. It's a very psychedelic mm. experience to watch this. I made a point of going to the theater to watch it, and if I'm going to pound the table for anything, it's seeing this movie in a movie theater because on a big screen, just these kind of endless shots of, of flowing rivers of magma and you know crazy rock formations and I don't know, just shots from a plane of huge areas of devastation. It's just the sense of geologic scale is wonderfully conveyed in this movie. However, my table pounding ceases for a moment when it comes to some of the framing of this material. There were some moments, and I saw this with my husband, who also loved it. We were very happy that we went to see it in the theater. It's a great date movie because there's tons to talk about afterwards. It's wildly romantic. It's, you know, huge visual spectacle. But both of us had almost identical reservations about some of the way the material was framed, which had more to do with the narration which we found occasionally a bit overwritten. There were some moments when, and I think we, we felt it in the exact same moments, where a beautiful point would be made in the narration that Miranda July is reading, which is partly written by Sarah Dosa, along with the two editors who helped co-write it and a, and a fourth writer. And then there would just be this moment of lily gilding where the, the beautiful observation would be followed by an obvious observation that we already got from the visual material itself. These are small critiques to be sure, but there were just there were moments when I felt like I wish someone was handling this with a little mm. bit of a lighter touch. There were also and these were very minimal, but because they were so minimal, I don't know why they had to be there at all. There were these moments of animation uh, yeah. where you know, a little bit of Katya and Maurice's story, for example, when they met um, in Alsace, where they're both from, is there's no visuals for that, right? They weren't filming their lives yet. And so it's, it's there's a bit of animation inserted. And that animation was just kind of tacky. <laughs> and mm. both of us came out sort of saying, this story is already so unbelievably romantic. The idea that you would animate right. it and then have the little animated cutouts that represent the couple have little twinkling hearts in the middle of their bodies is just Oops. kind of like tacky. So, I mean, those were those are small things, but put it this way. Werner Herzog has also made a movie about this same material, which is kind of surprising in the same year. And I would love an oral history of how those two docs happened at the same time. His documentary hasn't opened yet, but I believe it's opened abroad in some countries and it might be available streaming. I'm going to look into this because I really want to see Herzog in the same material. But oh and I, this is nothing against Sarah Dosa. I think she did a brilliant job of, of presenting this story. Uh, but I would be very curious to see what Herzog does with it, because I think the same material could have been presented in a different way I might have preferred. I love this movie. I mean, maybe there were a couple of gilded lily petals along the way, but uh, the animation being one in particular, I actually thought another prominent use of animation in the movie really worked for me. Um, it was when describing, um, and the film t tells you this immediately, it's not a spoiler, but they, they die chasing a volcano. And the um, moment of their separation when a kind of, uh, t to use a trite word, button is placed on this sublime relationship that they've had both with one another and the volcanoes they've chased and documented. Um, I actually thought that was quite poetic and deft. I, I was surprised, first of all, I, pleasantly surprised by how economical the movie was. It comes in at about 90 minutes. And secondly, by um, how much the lily was just allowed to sort of flutter in the breeze. I thought a lot of it was very poetic and, and relatively simple. I appreciated the attempt to use language to get at something more than just what the images were. Um, I thought what was really interesting, Jamel, is how much you get to know this couple and yet how much, in a way, you 
don't in some sense. There's such a set of strange contradictions. On the one hand, sort of classic world-averse nerds who lose themselves in an obsession in order to avoid humanity in general, right? And and because they both share that, they're obviously deeply, deeply connected to one another. Um, at the same time, very media savvy. Almost him, especially Maurice, is something of a showboat. They knew how to play to the camera, their own cameras, and to the television camera in a sense. And that kept stimulating in a good way, but more, I had more curiosity than could be satisfied by apparently this archive. Yes. So there's a point in the film, um, and I'll use this as an opportunity as like a quick parenthetical to say that, you know, the footage is their footage, the photographs are their photographs. And while, you know, it seems like it would be the easy thing to take pictures of big majestic or photograph big majestic things and have kind of, you know, like, Oh, obviously it's going to look good. It's clear from the material that they were very, very talented photographers and videographers. And that's sort of like they had mm-hmm. not just sharp eyes, but like a sense of visual storytelling. And there's a part in the documentary where um, the narrator, whose name I, I forget notes that, you know, because they have all this footage, you can sort of see them, figure out or, or think through well, what is the best way to visually present this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is the best way to communicate a particular feeling or emotion using the camera? And, you know, to, to this point of the couple being somewhat enigmatic, that scene sort of suggests it kind of, it, it takes away a little bit from the love story and suggests that there's much, there's something much more complex happening with them and with how, how they perceive themselves and how they think about their work. Um, I feel like there something similar happens towards the beginning where, you know, it's after they've been married and there's a quick note that they decide not to have children, which is sort of, it's, it's that that's a striking decision, especially for the time, the late sixties in France. Um, and so they're, like their inner lives, like for as much as the movie is about the inner lives, the inner lives actually are not all that apparent mm. um, in the film. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's interesting. I think it, I think it makes them sort of like even more compelling <laughs> to, to, to kind of yeah. look at and watch. Um, but it is just an interesting thing. We have all this footage. We have all this, you know, all, all, all these words, all this stuff that is um, – um, comes from the interior, but doesn't reveal as much as you think it might. Yeah, I mean, at one point, there's this very sly, uncharacteristic uh, part of the voiceover script where um, the narrator says, over time, they got good at playing themselves, right? Which suddenly kind of undercuts this sort of naked relationship they had with the terrestrial sublime. And all of a sudden, they seem kind of a little show busy as the it's not entirely the wrong word, but it's maybe a little bit of a low blow. But, you know, Maurice is uh, is a showboater, right? He takes this little inflatable dinghy that he makes a point of telling a TV host he bought at a, you know, Paris flea market. It's a, you know, cheap little rubber dinghy or whatever. And he ta- inflatable dinghy takes it out on a lake of sulfuric acid, right? Which, of course, they capture not only that he's doing this, which is a preposterous risk. He spends three hours out there trying to paddle back to shore as his own you know, materials are getting eaten through by the acid. They also, there are shots of uh, Katya, uh, you know, uh, uh, pacing wor- worriedly on the shore. And so they they occupied a kind of odd couple where he was the you know, a bit of a clown and she was the deeply serious, more scientific of the two. Ostensibly, they played these roles in a in a kind of self-consciously theatrical way. Did that how did that make you feel about about them in the movie, Dana? Was it sort of somewhat distrustful or more intrigued than than the movie could um address directly? Yeah, I don't think that may be distrustful of them, but it humanized them as characters and gave mm. you more of a glimpse into their it didn't heroicize them, let's say. Yeah. Yes, they were constructing something, but that doesn't mean that their lives were not authentically dangerous and that the risks they took were not authentically insane. <laughs> so so those moments in the documentary, to me, strengthened it. And I wish that we had gotten a bit more of a glimpse into their non-volcanic lives. I mean, like you say, Steve, you get the impression that their true lives were lived in these moments that they were camping out in volcanoes, filming things or waiting for things to happen so they could film them. But they also spent some time 
back in France producing the TV shows and the the books that allowed them to keep on funding their research. And I wish we had known a bit more about that. I suppose this would be something that a more conventional documentary would do, but I would have loved an interview or two with people who knew them, people who worked with them. There's somebody who's cited a few times who used to go and film with them a lot who sometimes pulled them out of danger at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved to hear an interview with either that person or whatever survivors he has. These are not critiques exactly, but it's it's that this documentary is so much about a mystery that it guards at its center that mm-hmm. it leaves you wanting to go through that archive yourself. You just want to go dig into the crafts, big boxes of, you know, of film and, and figure it all out on your right, own. Right, right. My viewing partner and I talked about wanting a fiction version of the same thing. Not beca- not to exactly fill holes in this movie, but just because there's so many moments that it makes you want to imagine. What was it like when they camped out, when they set up their tent, w- when they had the conversation about not having children? You know, when they discovered for the first time that they both wanted to have this insane life of chasing volcanoes. I mean, I would love, it sounds like if the right filmmaker did it, I would absolutely love to see a fiction version of this. And we even had it cast on our way out of the movie. So get this, John C. Riley as Maurice Kraft. Oh yeah, right? obviously. Perfect. Yeah. This kind of big, big bear of a man, right? Kind of funny, kind of goofy showmanship, et cetera. And then Tilda Swinton as Katya, this very bird-like, you know, intense mm. and kind of academic woman. I love it. Um, all right. Well, I think three of us are, enthusiastic enough to say uh, uh if you haven't maybe go to the theater and check it out definitely do it on a big screen all right it's fire of love and it's in theaters now all right moving on all right well what i was growing up advertising was the dominant means of monetizing content and it gave the illusion at least to me as a very young person that everything was free or at least relatively pretty cheap The collapse of advertising as the dominant business model uh, has turned our world into a subscription-based one, largely. Television is the biggest shocker, again, if you're my age. It went from being ad-saturated. I mean, you just sat there for hours being passively blitzed by 30-second or even minute-long ads. Uh, And now it's uh, largely ad-free because, of course, it's uh, uh, dominated by streaming subscription services. Um, most of the streaming services are in both businesses. They're both uh, content producers and content distributors. Um, it's crazy how uncornered that market was until relatively recently. As I recall, as recently as three, four years ago, you could have Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, and maybe you're done at that point. Well, there are a lot more choices now. That means tougher choices and a tougher business model. People are going to start adding new ones, dropping old ones, and it raises a question. Uh, Dana, I'll start with you. Um, Which of these do you admire? Which of these do you find disposable? Which annoy you? What, uh, What do you make of the streaming wars? I mean, the whole economics of this annoy me, honestly. It just feels like everybody is constantly trying to cut a new hole in your pocket by inventing some streaming service that you suddenly need. And I probably am the only one of the three of us who has not yet cut the cable cord for various reasons, mainly involving sports broadcasts that need to be seen in our home at certain times of year. We still have cable. In addition to a whole bunch of these services, of course, it is my job to talk about media and movies and TV and culture. So to some degree, this is a work expense for me, and I do write off cable on my taxes, but still, it really, really adds up. And uh, at this point, I guess we've also got Apple and Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and HBO Max, and it's just, I don't even want to think about what the toll this is taking on our household budget every month. As for which ones are worth it, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what you want to watch and what matters to you about these services, but a lot of them feel to me like they're trying to add enough value, just enough value to get that extra 5 or $10 a month out of your pocket and not delivering that much beyond that. I mean, there's plenty of these channels that I have basically to watch one thing. You know, Apple TV mm-hmm. Plus, I'm hanging on to it because I love Severance. Maybe I'll even get rid of it until Severance comes back again. Uh, Paramount Plus. I like watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I actually was thinking about endorsing on today's show. Um, But that's the only thing I watch on that particular channel. So it's seeming more and more like they just want to dangle enough bait to get each user to have that relationship to one show. And then they pad the rest of it out with whatever they pad it out with. I don't know. Obviously, these aren't calculated decisions on these networks part. They're also trying desperately to figure out what to throw out to survive. But the media landscape right now feels very consumer unfriendly to me, and it just feels like 
a big running scam. I don't know. Mm. What about you guys? I feel somewhat uh, similarly. I've been kind of gradually paring back streaming uh, services, except for those that I find actually kind of essential because they just, you know, it's sort of, it's um, like Amazon Prime, for example, it's sort of like a lot of crap and then a couple shows that you might want to watch. And I'm not sure that's necessarily worth shelling out 10 or $11 a month. I, I think the services that that do um, that are worth something are those that provide kind of a big back catalog of actually interesting stuff to watch. So I think HBO Max. You know, I'm not sure the app is put together all that well, but it has this sort of very deep catalog of you know Warner Brothers films, Turner Classic movies, that kind of thing. And I, I think that's really valuable. I've I feel like I've boosted Criterion Channel in here before, and I'll do it give it again. Criterion Channel is like. A, absolutely worth the money because it's just it's not just a, a deep collection of films of all sorts but also the um the company puts a lot of effort into curation and to sort of like providing you the viewer um a structure for what you might want to watch and that's i mean I, th- I think i think that that's the kind if they're if we're thinking about what we'd want streaming service to do that's the kind of thing i'd like to see more of not just kind of dropping everything in front of us but sort of saying you know here is here are things that go together thematically or from the same director Mm -hmm. or so on and so forth but then that requires being able to have the kind of big catalog and um you know access to lots of stuff that most of these services just don't have yeah i mean i for me like my hobby horse has always been you know the relationship between the business model and the content uh, I just find that subject fascinating because, you know, Dana, you know this story intimately well, which is, you know, effectively it was an integrated, uh, vertically integrated business and the studios used to own the theaters. And because you had enormous amounts of risk control built into the model, you could have, you know, splashy budgets uh, and you had stars under lifelong contracts. And as you move into a free agent world, the risks become huge. The upfront budget costs are so massive relative to the possibility that people just won't like it and watch it, that you have to control risk another way. So what do they do? They create the blockbuster. And the blockbuster has, you know, you know, using very familiar IP has huge, reliable, built in, you know, fan fan bases that will show up to re it's more to reenter a world often, it seems to me than to actually enjoy a story that has an element of freshness or surprise to it. And it's the hordes of people who are willing to pay the cost for world re-entry that make it possible to produce, you know, 100 to $200 million budgeted uh, Marvel movies and Star Wars movies and on and on and on. That's a huge detriment to Hollywood that was compensated for by streaming because it was the other model. It was like being vertically integrated in that you had subscribers. It didn't ultimately matter who watched what on the far end, what mattered was you had subscriber growth. And I think it's fascinating to enter a period of, of stagnating subscriber growth and also an embarrassment of riches for consumers. I mean, the golden age of TV really came about because of the subscription model that HBO pioneered and allowed them to become a studio, a super high quality studio and a pioneer in quality TV. What's amazing is how long TV was that good and the competition was relatively limited. And we were talking about a tiny oligopoly of really reliable producers, basically Prime, Netflix, HBO, when it was still a cable channel, uh, and then a little bit along the fringes, a couple of others, which you could subscribe to or not subscribe to. But if you wanted to like have a water cooler conversation about TV for several years now, your budget was probably well under 50 bucks a month as opposed to a cable bill, which got up to 180 or something. And um, and that's really changing now. And, and it does feel, Jamel, like to me doing the show three to five years ago, it was low hanging fruit. Every 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 week, we could just place our palm out, and a nice, big, juicy, ripe, you know, TV show would fall into it that we could talk about. And now the pick and slim seem much slimmer to me. Is that your experience? That seems right. I mean, I don't I don't watch a ton of TV. I kind of have largely checked out of it. But as far as I can tell, there's a lot. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of slop. Um, and this is how I feel about. 
movies, certainly, I think as far as the streaming services and movies go, there is a point at which you might be a little excited to see what kind of movie a streaming service is producing. But these days it's just sort of, you know, lots of, lots of very mediocre things um, uh, that uh, are necessarily worth watching. Um, and it's, it's a struggle to find something that is. Yeah, Netflix had that moment, right? Netflix had that moment that it was making Marriage Story and, you know, Oscar contending kinds of movies, and it was going to try to move into that space. And I think they have just pretty recently decided that that's not really worth it. And they're, they're just going to continue to churn out more mediocre content and try to get a broader base of subscribers. So I don't know. I mean, I, I worry about whether or not there's going to be any streamer that's willing to to step in and start trying to save the theatrical part of their business. Yeah. I mean, another way to look at this also is that, you know, in the early growth phase of the subscriber services, rate of growth is more important maybe than, you know, absolute number of eyeballs in some sense. Well, why? Because what you're trying to do is please Wall Street and stimulate a lot of uh, investment capital from from Wall Street and investors. And so your market cap may not actually, re- you know, it reflects a future expectation of, of, of how big the company will get with growth. Well, the problem is as it draws in competition, you know, all the early adopters have already signed up. You've already drawn in all of the discerning viewers with, you know, spare cash, and now you're fighting among them. It just changes the, 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 the it changes the content drastically because, you know, you're you're no longer you're trying to achieve habitual complacency with a built-in subscriber base that's very hard to grow now because of saturation and maturity of the business model in a field of much more intense competition, as opposed to stimulating discerning early adopters to subscribe to this exciting new thing and demonstrate growth growth to Wall Street. Jamel, what sometimes occurs to me in moments of exhilaration, but also terror, is that, you know, a lot of people have argued that the asset economy, sort of asset boom driven economy with Wall Street at its heart, which we've been enjoying is not the right word, but living in for 30, 40 years, maybe coming to an end. And in that sense, content was on a bubble. What we were seeing and how good what we were seeing for many years and took for granted was in no small part, a consequence of cheap, easy credit, asset bubbles, and these specifically these companies' stock prices being mammothly inflated based on an anticipation of you know future earnings. And once that comes to an end, it's not only that they stagnate as business models. What we watch is going to become way more banal and um, risk averse. No, that sounds right. Um, that it, it, that sounds. Very right that sort of to the extent that there was a golden age for any of this stuff, it was <laughs> the result of uh, cheap and easy free-flowing money and um, uh, no other productive use for it, um, no other productive use or no no uh, force in society trying to find a productive use for it. Mm. it, it maybe it's an, an accident, right, that kind of the, the most um, – the streaming services that seem to be, if you can call any of these things vital, seem to be vital, they're ones that are connected to uh, some kind of business that has um, like a physical component. You know what I mean? Sort of like it actually produces something, right? Like HBO Max, HBO still, you know, is is a cable network that you people pay for. Um, and obviously, you know, Warner Brothers is a big studio and so on and so forth. Criterion, you know, their bread and butter is still producing physical like you know restoring films producing physical disc and like selling them to people um it might it might be the it might be the case that as the streaming era goes forth continues forward the streaming services that will remain you know worthwhile will be vital are the ones that are connected to a business that is simply that is bigger than just trying to juice up subscriber numbers Okay. All right. Let's just go around the horn here. Uh, uh, Jamel, we'll, we'll start with you. Desert Island streaming service. You only have one. Assume that its current level of quality stays constant ad infinitum. What are you taking with you? I mean, it's going to be Criterion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of. If I could only have one, that's the one. 
That's a great choice. I suspect it's Dana's too. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost feel like that's a different animal. I mean, it, obviously, technically, it is a streaming service, but it's not. It doesn't feel like an aggregator that's trying to kind of get eyeballs in the same mm. way. It feels more like belonging to a library or something like that. Yeah, hundred percent. It would definitely be Criterion, and in fact, I should be doing that right now. I should be online disconnecting all these other subscriptions, saving lots of money, and watching a lot more good movies. All right, I'm going to go with the you know sort of counterintuitive choice here, which is I'm going to stick with Netflix. And I think we just got spoiled by the 800-pound gorilla that had unbelievable amounts of Wall Street treasure to spend on um, various uh, content of every kind, like, you know, old sitcoms and, you know, new prestige movies. And they're being judged against uh, a standard appropriate to a couple, three years ago, and they didn't have the competition even all of that said, I find myself watching Netflix all the time. I like ransacking it for stuff and o- always find, you know, something uh, in it. And I think some of their new content has been been um, relatively fresh. It's a changed world and they deserve to be graded on that curve. All right. Well, uh, we this is one of those ones where like the segment really only gets rounded out in our email boxes. We'd love to hear what you guys uh, think about uh, this subject. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I already mentioned my endorsement in our streaming segment just now. It's Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is this uh, the series that started earlier this spring on Paramount Plus and which initially I had no interest in because, as I've talked about before on the show, I mean, it's not even that I'm a purist. I'm just boring and stodgy. The only Star Trek that I've ever really cared about is the original one, the original series from the 60s, which I grew up watching in reruns and which is a huge sort of formative part of my of my life as a viewer, just those early memories of the primary colors and weird sparkly props and that whole 60s universe of the, the first Star Trek. And Strange New Worlds is the first of the many, many now Star Trek spinoff series to have really gone back to that world. It's sort of a prequel to the original Star Trek. It takes place in a, roughly the same time frame with some of the same characters, including science officer Spock and Christopher Pike, who, if you followed the original show, was the very first captain of the Starship Enterprise. He was only in the pilot of Star Trek. And then William Shatner came in as Kirk to replace him. So this version returns to that just pre Captain Kirk Enterprise. It has a sensibility that is strangely similar and yet expands upon the uh, the characters from the original show. And I feel like it has a real love and respect for what was silly and, and original about that show in the 60s when it came along, while also updating it, making it more diverse and more feminist and more of our time. Uh, the special effects are kind of endearingly um, dorky. There's not a lot of CGI. The The aliens seem to basically be done with, you know, puppetry and masks and prosthetics and so forth. And it's just it's just really fun so far. Another thing that I love about it, and this is another of my particular TV quirks, is that it's an episodic show, meaning that each episode stands alone and has that kind of allegorical sci-fi quality that the original show had, you know, where each one would have sort of a theme that it developed and then end, and then the next one starts afresh with a completely new story. So obviously there's some continuity in characters from show to show, but it's not one of those deep mythology shows where it really matters what order you watch the episodes in. So I've just been watching it in a purely playful way. It's it's my solo show that nobody else in my household watches. And when I'm just in the mood for something that does not demand a lot of you, but that is also not insulting to your intelligence, I watch an episode of Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus. So that's my endorsement for this week. Uh, that's That sounds fun. Uh, Jamel, uh, what do you got? I recently uh, picked up a the reissue, I guess the reissue, the, the new release of uh, Roland Emmerich's 1992 movie Universal Soldier. New v- restored version of it is out. Um, 4K version. So I picked that up and I watched it a couple of days ago and it's great. I haven't seen it in years and it's a, it's a, it's a fun little action movie of the kind they don't really make anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, uh, it, it the, the restoration looks terrific. Jean Claude Van Damme has never looked so crisp. Um, but uh, <laughs> what's you know, if you've never seen the film, basically the conceit is is the U.S. government uh, takes dead soldiers and turns them into sort of like unstoppable killing machines. And one of those soldiers remember like has you know begins to remember its prior humanity, um, uh, which involves uh, killing and being killed by um, his former. Uh, uh, platoon mate in Vietnam 
played by Dolph Lundgren, who also has who's also been turned into one of these soldiers and also um, kind of recovers his humanity such that it is. And they're they're once again in conflict with each other. It's very silly conceit. Um, not every part of the movie is all that strong, but sort of like the 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 action and the and the fighting is a lot of fun to watch. Um, and this movie spawned a ton of sequels. Most of them are very bad. But about five or six years ago, there was a sequel that was genuinely fantastic called Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which is kind of one of those sort of deconstructing, not just like the mythology, but deconstructing like Van Damme's star persona somewhat and Lundgren's star personas somewhat. So um, my my uh, I guess my recommendation or whatnot is going to be to if you have a chance to rewatch Universal Soldier, it is good. It's good fun. Um, but also to check out Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which I, I, for my money is one of the great action flicks of the last decade. Oh, that's awesome. Um, all right. So I saw something this uh, past weekend that was really almost as mind-blowing, if not as mind-blowing as the um, uh, Volcano movie. Sublime in in, in um, surprisingly similar ways. It's a uh, an artwork built out of the earth over in uh, the Catskills in Saugerties, New York, called Opus 40. I know it. Oh, my God. I love Opus 40. Yes, I want to hear you on it. it, I know you live right near it. So it's 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 just shameful that I hadn't made it over there yet. But um, but finally I did. And it's so effectively it's on, I think, it's several acres. There's seven or ten acres. It may be more, but the artwork itself is basically over um, six and a half acres. And it's an earthwork sculpture in the 1930s. a, uh, a sculptor and a bard professor named Harvey Fite, F-I-T-E, purchased this old quarry, I guess a bluestone quarry, and then all by himself over 37 years, using only sort of legacy quarrymen tools, like you know pre-industrial tools that, that uh, people who worked on quarries used, he essentially built out of the earth. It began as a sort of gigantic pedestal for his um, figural statues, which are themselves, I think, quite beautiful. And then he realized, no, in fact, this pedestal is the work in some sense. And it's just intricate masonry. And so it does the exact same thing that the Volcano movie, movie does. It conveys a sense of both temporal and spatial scale that extends beyond what appears to be any individual's possible consciousness. And he called it Opus 40 because he knew when he started, he said, this is going to take me 40 years to finish. And in fact, it would have, and he would have finished it, and it would have come in at almost exactly 40, but he fell to his death in the 38th year of doing it um, uh, while making it. And he basically lived... On this property, he was very happily married. His wife was a socialite, Barbara Fight, and they lived together happily as he day after day after day, you know, cut into the earth, shaped these stones, piled them, and turned them into this magnificent, it's hard to describe. There were like sort of semi-subterranean, you know, bluestone alleyways moving up to these, you know, gigantic swirling rock pedestals. It's almost like the freaking... Acropolis or something in the middle of the woods. And then there are, there's like a a huge monolith. He decided to do something non-figural and as massive as possible at the center of the main pedestal of it. Um, And that's remarkable as well. And he just wanted to use non, you know, modern techniques to hoist it and put it in place. Um, and then uh, on the in, in the woods on the um, periphery, there are these these quite beautiful sort of ancient seeming but um, uh, figural statues that are that are incredible. But it just it has the kind of kind of quiet awe of a of a ruin, right? A site where an entire civilization spent its l- collective life as a civilization, and that civilization is gone completely, but for the stonework and. This has a feeling of a thing that, regardless of what fucking mischief this species gets up to, this thing is going to be there in 10,000 years. And then you have to permit yourself a chuckle, which is how are the aliens or future humans, if we're so lucky to, to have any in 10,000 years, going to completely wildly misinterpret this stone thing? Like what civilization are they going to extrapolate from this 
evidence in some sense. It's just, it's a remarkable, a remarkable testimony to lonely human obsession and just the desire to create meaning completely in relation to the earth itself, exactly as the movie was. I hadn't seen the movie yet when I went to Opus 40. So it's it's highly recommended. We'll put a link to the website. Uh, check it out. Dana, I'm so, I, I was wondering if you might have ever seen it, but I cannot wait to go back. Yeah. I mean, I had one very earthy thing to add to your very uh, sublime explanation of what Opus 40 is, which is that it's a really great place to take kids because yeah. it's very experiential. I, I We went there when our daughter was probably six or something, so about 10 years ago. And it was such a wonderful day because we got to experience all of those things you're talking about and really kind of take it in as a work of of art and, a you know, of practice, you know, of a sort of lifelong commitment to this insane project. And meanwhile, she was sort of on this crazy lunar playground where you can climb on rocks and run around through labyrinthine tunnels. And it's just it's a ex- very experiential piece of art. So I really recommend visiting it, even if you have little kids and you think, oh, they're not going to let me look at it. They will because they'll be enjoying it in their own way. Mm hmm. All right. Well, uh, Jamel, thank you so much for coming back on. That was great. Always my pleasure. And Dana, as always, a real pleasure week after week. It was a joy. I loved our topics this week. Uh, You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And of course, we'd like to ask you to subscribe to our podcast at uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, if you haven't already. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our uh, producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistants this week are Christy Taiwo Makanjula and Nadira Goff. For Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gabfest. We're answering a listener question this week from a listener named Ezra. He wrote in to ask, if you could retire any three movie cliches, which ones would you choose? And the choices he gave as examples were protagonist humiliated at public event, <laughs> CF every romantic comedy ever, protagonist proves villains guilt by covertly recording them, and he gives us examples, Monsters, Inc., Michael Clayton, I mean, also he could have said every mobster movie ever made, probably, and finally, female protagonist frames male character by faking a sexual assault, Gone Girl, The Last Seduction are his examples. Okay, I wouldn't have come up with those particular examples, but I'm certainly familiar with the idea of I've seen enough of this movie cliche, and I have an example for my very first one. Maybe I'll start, and then I'll I'll throw it to you all. Uh, The first thing that came to mind when I was thinking of movie cliches that need retiring, and this one may be so dusty at this point that no one would use it anymore anyway, but what about the rom-com ending where the couple finally kisses and gets together and bystanders applaud? That was embarrassing the first time, and we really, really, really never need to see it again. So that one came to mind for me. I'm sure as we talk, I'll think of others. But okay, Steve, I don't think you've been started with yet for any segment this this week. So I'll start with you. You have a movie cliche you want to retire? Uh, I have a couple off the top of my head. And the, the first is, um, you see it in movies, see it in TV shows all the time. I've, I've been watching the uh, the killing, the original Danish version of the killing and think it's terrific. I think it's just, it's, you know, early example of golden age TV, great characterizations, wonderful cast, really strong writing. Uh, very, very good take on the, on the sort of mismatched cops, you know, sort of thrown together on a case. That's a cliche I can kind of live with if you do it in an original way. And then it is a couple of moments that just lapse into one of the worst is that a key witness you know, who knows something is suddenly whacked, but they're not quite dead. And the lead detective pushes her way through the crowd and the police line flashing her badge and comes upon him just as he's dying. And you get one of two things. I mean, it's not really, it's a cliche either way. You either get um, some last thing death rattles out of their throat, you know, indicating who the perpetrator is or isn't, or some mysterious phrase is uttered right before they die, or just before they can do that, they die. And it's like, you know, you really took me, you, you, you had me in a world that for the purposes of watching this, I believed it was a real world or my disbelief was adequately suspended. And then it just came crashing down when you did this because it's just silly that that 
coincidence of of timing, right? That perfect timing of just like, you know, going through the yellow under underneath the yellow tape line at just the moment this person dies. It's like, ah, eh, we don't need that. That that just is alienating to me. And then, you know, I think a really interesting one that's undergone revision and maybe is even is being, you know, left for um, as it were dead now is is needing to open on a young pretty dead woman in order to motivate um a detective show right it's like well, the, the 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 dispropor I, I mean really i know this is going to sound so politically correct but i actually mean it sincerely it's like violence against women and young women and then kind of treating the ultimate violence against uh, another human being, but always it, it was it, it was just wildly disproportionate to who actually gets killed in the world, who actually gets murdered in the world. Not that women women are are the victims of violence and and murder by partners or ex partners in hugely disproportionate numbers. Don't get me wrong, but there's this way in which mystery gets inaugurated by the death of a promising young, almost in, invariably beautiful uh, girl or woman in a way that I just find really tiresome now as a person who really, really enjoys the genre of like mystery or whatever, or cop procedural. I just, God, I can't, you can't do that anymore. It just has been flogged and flogged. But um, Jamel, what about you? Um, I mean, I guess there are things that if they show up in a movie, I immediately roll my eyes. Like if I turn on some sort of science fiction film and it begins sort of like, you know, there's a prophecy or, you know, a chosen one or any of that nonsense. I kind of roll my eyes and I'm tempted to turn it off. Um, things that I think are just like very silly uh, as far as cliches go or any movie where, you know, there's like a father, like a bad, a bad dad who, you know, is always like, the kids are worthless kind of thing. Um, we, um, you know, we last, when I was on last week, we, we, we watched the, the black phone and that has a little bit of that. Um, and I thought it was silly then. Uh, unfortunately, my brain has been completely poisoned by the movie walk hard, uh, the Dewey Cox story, which has a very funny, you know, take on that cliche um, with Dewey Cox's father uh, saying to him, the wrong kid died. Um, so, I mean, there's that, that, that comes to mind. I'm trying to think of other, other cliches, uh, that, that, uh, make me roll my eyes. I watch a lot of action movies and those, a lot of those are kind of just built, um, on cliches. I mean, at a certain point, the whole, the whole, uh, conceit of, you know, like young hotshot cop, older gruff veteran is itself it's like oh it's it's just like a cliche way of structuring that kind of movie um yeah that's what i have off the top of my head yeah the the cop ones that you just mentioned jamel made me think of another one that i mean this one like the the prophecy of the one may be incontrovertible it may be impossible to have the genre without it basically like everybody is so over the one and yet what is dune about except yet another iteration of the prophecy and the one but i'm just thinking of one last job right one last heist (laughs) the cop who's gonna just do one last thing or one crooked thing for once in his career so he can save up money for his family and of course it's the one last job that's gonna go south And we just saw something like that in the new, um, you know, the Jeff Bridges show, The Old Man, which I think is really good and I want to keep watching. But it certainly is, you know, yet another one last job. I mean, there is a thin line when you talk about cliche between cliche and archetype. And I know I've had experiences Mm. in the past as a critic where... I experience, you know, something in a in a film as one of those two things, and it seems like other critics experience it as the opposite. And I'll say, wait, that's not a cliche. It's just a a familiar, you know, a mythical archetype that you know we have to return to and unpack in different ways. I don't know. I mean, are there are there cliches that you forgive because they also count as archetypes, or does does that distinction not seem meaningful? No, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, just just on the on the topic of cop shows or one last thing, like you know, I will watch any movie that's about you know some thieves doing one last heist. I think that's a really fun mm-hmm. conceit for a movie, even though it's very cliche. It's a good way to get things started. Um, uh, so you know, like yeah, assembling are, the team also, right? When right, you do right. your one last heist, oh, you've got yeah. to assemble your team, which is a total cliche. But who doesn't love an assembling the team assembling montage? Assembling the team, right? I mean, like, right, cutting against it is hustle, right? The 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 Sandler movie that I think 
you know, you, Julia, and I really liked, even though... Well, I didn't love it as much as you guys, but... Fair enough. But if you just laid out each of its beats and turning points and, you know, on and on, you'd say, I've seen this movie a thousand times. It's the total satisfaction of someone, you know, sort of remaking or renewing a set of archetypes or cliches so that they once again feel like archetypes, ironically, because they're so individualized they're so true to life in some other sense that it's very satisfying i mean that is the satisfaction of genre genres are familiar right yeah i guess your answer to this would would vary based on how annoyed you are by genre tropes versus how much you welcome them and that can also vary genre to genre it could be like jamel's an action movie guy maybe he's willing to accept some cliches there that would drive him crazy elsewhere i think rom-coms are the place to me where the cliches just get so old and i may love the action movie montage of getting the team together but i really do not like the third act rom-com montage that's so obligatory of the couple is separated by some kind of obstacle and we hear a pop song while we see them doing separate activities and pining for each other. That needs to be either completely weeded out or just completely rethought. All right, well, again here, this is a place where listener feedback would be would be fun to hear. If you, like Ezra, have some favorite movie cliches that you want to retire or least favorite or other, please write us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear them. All right. So thanks so much for joining us, for being Slate Plus members and supporting our show. For Jamel Bowie and Steve Metcalf, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week.